Who's your favorite Bible character? David. I heard David. Anyone else? Joseph. Other ones? Gideon. Nice. Daniel. Another good prophet. Paul. Smart guy. Jonah. Jonah. Esther. I like hearing Esther. Tamara. Deborah. All right. Tough lady. I like that. That's good. Lots of different Jesus. Nice work. Sunday school answer. We didn't nail it right at the end. Lots of different, lots of different characters from the, from the scriptures that we love. We love what they teach us. We love the stories. So many of the stories for those of us who you have been a part of faith for your life. They're so familiar. And they've touched you and met you at different times and in different places and in different ways. But what we know about the scriptures is that there are literally thousands of people who are part of the story. And so often we get caught up in 20, 30, maybe 40 or 50 characters and learn from them what it is that God is showing us through his word. But there's so much else to mine deeply and understand from these different various unknown characters that for the next several weeks, we want to dig into that. As a community, we're going to be digging into characters like Abigail. How many of you know who Abigail is? A couple of you? Good. Um, Philemon, he got a whole book. It's only a chapter long, but he got a book. What's it all about? We're going to talk about Jude, also another book that's only a chapter long. What's that book about? We're going to be looking at various characters like a Canaanite woman who shows us something about faith. We're going to be diving deep into these little vignettes, little places where God shows us himself in maybe some different ways that we haven't thought about or learned about this more before. And this morning we're going to do that through jumping into the character of Jephthah, perhaps one that you've not heard of before. As we dig into God's word together this morning, would you pray with me that God meets us in our time, transforms us, and shows us his power through his word. Father, we thank you for the power of your word. We're reminded, Lord, that through the scriptures of 1 Timothy, that um, your word is breathed by you. And all of it is useful for us for teaching, rebuking, training in righteousness, understanding more deeply what it is that you have for us in your word. We pray, Lord, that we can grab on this morning to what you teach us through Jephthah. That, Lord, if it be your will, I might disappear and you speak through me. You speak to this place with your voice that we might be touched by you, transformed by you, moved by you in such a way, Lord, that you give us what it is that we need that we gain the encouragement, the hope, the love, the admonishment even, Lord, that we need so that we might go from this place fueled and encouraged to serve you in whatever you have for us ahead. We pray these things all in the name of Jesus, God's people said together. Amen. Amen. You're turning with me in the book of Judges, chapter 10. If you don't know where the book of Judges is, it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. So about the seventh book in, it's going to be maybe about uh, one-fifth, one-sixth of the way into your Old Testament from the beginning. And we're going to be beginning there at 
chapter 10 of this book of Judges, which is an interesting book, and we'll talk about that in a moment, what's so interesting about it. And we're going to learn a little bit about this character of Jephthah and what it is that he did in Israel that then now teaches us um, who God is in our lives. We're going to begin with verses 6 through 18. Again, the, Israel, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And if you read again, that means you should probably go back and look at what happened before. We'll do that in a moment. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sion, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served them, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our gods and serving the Baals. The Lord replied, when the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonites, the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me, and you served other gods. So I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. But the Israelites said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. And they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. And he could bear Israel's misery no longer. When the Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. Leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, whoever will take the lead in attacking the Ammonites will be head over all who live in Gilead. So, beginning of the story really shows that Israel has lived into a pattern. And if you look back at the book of Judges, you're going to see that they live constantly in this sort of pattern. And we actually, I remember seeing a, a, a sort of an illustration of this pattern, how it would work, almost this cycle, that Israel's people obeyed and served God then Israel's people forgot God and served other idols. And then someone came and oppressed and enslaved Israel. And then Israel cried out to God again. And in their crying out, then they went worshipped God again. And God saved them and they worshipped them. It's sort of a cycle. And it happens pretty consistently throughout the book of Judges. And you will see this phrase constantly. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They weren't serving God faithfully. They were in fact serving the other gods because they were in a new land. This is uh, at the beginning of Joshua. They're entered, they've entered into the new promised land. They've gotten their inheritance for the 12 tribes of Israel that had journeyed from, from Egypt out of slavery. That old story from the, the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And now they were in this promised land where God said the land flowed with milk and honey and you could enter into your inheritance. But when they got there, they just decided to forget all the previous part of the story. 
And because they forgot the previous part of the story until things got hard and things got in trouble again, um, God, could you imagine? Like, it's, it's the same sort of conversation that you have with your kids sometimes. You tell them not to do something, and they do it, and there's consequence to it, and you say, oh, look what happened. And then they say, oh, I'll never do that again. Is anyone, is this familiar to anybody? And then they say, I'm not only not going to do that again, but can you help me recover from this? And then it all turns into the cycle again. And you can imagine that God gets frustrated. In fact, we see that here. God says these words. It's powerful. It's, it's, It's massive. Verse 13 and 14, what we read there. But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. Does that sound stark to you? That's like overwhelming to me. Because I know that we live in a different place now, right? We're not the Old Testament believers. We're not the Old Testament people. We know we have Jesus. God be praised. We have the reminder of his shed blood and broken body for our sin. But I still wonder if God has echoes of that with us. That God almost wants to say to us, go and serve the gods that you have chosen and see if they can save you. Because how many of us have other gods? Put all your hand up, folks. John Calvin calls us little idol factories because we have other gods in our lives. I do. Money. You know, money is going to save all problems. If I have enough money, everything's going to be just fine. If I have certain relationships in my life, if my marriage is a certain way, if my kids are a certain way, if my friends are a certain way, if my community is a certain way, everything is going to be perfect and great. If only politics could get figured out the way that I think it should. We invest so much in either a conservative dogma or a liberal dogma that if only these things were the way that I think they should be or that this party thinks that they should be or this news network thinks that it should be or the, this political leader thinks that it should be. If only it were like that, everything would be fine. And in some senses, I want to say to all of us who believe any of those things and all the others... I want, I want you to hear this. Go and cry out to your money. Go and cry out to your family. Go and cry out to your workplace. Go and cry out to your political party. You've chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. And what happens? We know it doesn't work. I can't fix it. Money can't fix it. Even healthy relationships, it can make things better. It can support me. I can receive love and encouragement. But if it is without Christ in it, if, without, if it is without dependence upon God in it, it will ultimately be empty. 
Those of you who know the pain of broken relationships in your life know what that's like. We certainly know that political dogma won't save it. It doesn't matter where we stand on that stuff if our salvation comes from red and blue parties or anything otherwise. God says, hey, let's see what it can do for you. And I wonder sometimes if we're in that place. I wonder sometimes if individually or as a church or as a culture or as different times that we are in that place sometimes where God says to us, you have made your bed. Now sleep in it. And for us to hear the words of Israel when that happens, what do they say there? They say, we have, what do they say? We have, somebody say it loud. Say it louder. We have sinned. An unpopular word, yes? Not a nice word. In fact, there's one particular group of pastors in this country who won't even talk about sin. Because uh, sin puts guilt upon us. Sin puts conviction on us. But here we see the people acknowledging that we are part of the problem with our own sin. We have done something that has hurt our relationship with you. Does anybody know what sin is? If you had to define sin, uh, let me give it to you. Let me, let me, I'll help this along, all right? Here's ultimately what sin is. Sin is independence of God. Make sense? Godliness is dependence on God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strengths. And sin is independence from God. I can do it on my own. In whatever place, shape, or form it comes. And God is saying to us, if that's what you want, if independence from me is what you want, you think you can pull it off, or something else can pull it off besides me, okay, follow it. Go to the ultimate of what that will give you and see if it saves you. And I wonder sometimes if God simply wants us to say, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness, Oh God, how I need you. I need you. I long for your presence. I long for my life to be so deeply entwined with yours that there is nowhere else I can go. Now what's interesting about this story is who God raises up to be his presence in his people. Verses 1 through 11 of chapter 11. Jephthah, we meet him. The Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. Gileadite, makes sense. His mother was a prostitute. Uh oh. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of 
scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. This guy's story is awesome so far, right? Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. And Jephthah does what any rational person would say when you come, when these people who rejected you come to you. He said to them, didn't you hate me? Drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went to the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander of them over them and he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. So you get this awesome guy, right? He's got a sterling family history. Everything is perfect. Not so much. His mom is a prostitute, but you, and you might not catch those words at the beginning how it works. Gilead, his dad had a wife and had children with another wife, but then he had an affair with a prostitute and 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 Jephthah is the product of that relationship. And you could imagine how that family basically looked at him and said, we don't want any part of you. Makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, it's really the evidence of a father's betrayal of them and their mother. So it makes sense that they would reject him. But when things start to go south, they see him as some sort of salvation. Now, let me, let me be clear about this. They see Jephthah as their salvation. But here's what my guess is. Here's my guess that there were a lot of other people who were, and the words are right at the beginning of chapter 11, who were mighty warriors like Jephthah. There were probably others who not only were mighty warriors, but had good people surrounding them. Jephthah is a mighty warrior, but who does he have surrounding him? What do they call them? Scoundrels. So this guy doesn't even have a good group of people around him. How is it that they would turn to him, someone who they rejected because of his pedigree? He's the son of a prostitute that represents rejection of his, their father for their mother. Why would that happen? Because God gave them eyes to see. God gave them eyes not just to see Jephthah, but God directed their eyes so that they would only see Jephthah. Jephthah is one of those people who should not be a part of the story of God unless God shows up and unless God moves and unless, and this is absolutely key, things are bad for Israel. They're oppressed, right? We see that. The Ammonites have got them. They've had them for 19 years. They've been oppressing the whole area of Gilead. It's been a bad thing. And so they're basically saying, all this time we've been in trouble. Someone has to help. They're, you know what this is called? You might recognize it. Because my guess is that many of you have made it. It's called a foxhole conversion. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Oh God, 
If you save me from this thing, I will serve you all my life. Anyone ever done that? I have. I have done it probably 10, 12 times. If God will, if you will show up here in this thing, this, 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 I remember seeing it in seminary. If you can save me from seminary, then Father, I will serve you faithfully for all of my life. If you can save me from this, if you can save me from that, we have made foxhole vows in our own unique fashion because when things are bad is a really important time. It shares with us, shows us where our dependence lies. When your life is a train wreck, when your life is broken, if you turn to God, as the Israelites did, they cried out to God, then there's hope because you're at least crying out to the right place. Israel makes that cry. Israel makes that cry and Jephthah shows up and they give him the lead role. Verses 11, or chapter 11, 12 through 28 continues the story because now we've got to figure out how Jephthah, um, God uses Jephthah to get him out of trouble. Then Jephthah sends messengers to the Ammonite king with the question, what do you have against me that you attack my country? King of the Ammonites answered Jephthah's message. Answered Jephthah's messengers. When Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok all the way to the Jordan. Now give it back peaceably. Jephthah sent back messengers to the Ammonite king saying, this is what Jephthah says. Israel did not take the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up out of Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and on to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom saying, give us permission to go through your country. But the king of Edom would not listen. They sent also to the king of Moab and he refused. So Israel stayed in Kadesh. Next, they traveled through the wilderness, skirting the lands of Edom and Moab, passed along the eastern side of the country of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. They did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was its border. Then Israel sent messengers to Sahan, king of Amorites, who ruled in Heshbon, and said to him, Let us pass through your country to our own place. Follow me here, just stick with it, you'll understand in a moment. Sahan, however, did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. He mustered all his troops and encamped at Gahaz and fought with Israel. Then the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sahan and his whole army into Israel's hands, and they defeated them. Israel took over all the land of the Amorites who lived in that country, capturing all of it from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the desert to the Jordan. Now since the Lord, the God of Israel, has driven the Amorites out before his people Israel, what right have you to take it over? Will you not take what your God, Shamash, gives you? Likewise, whatever the Lord our God has given us, we will possess are you any better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever quarrel with Israel or fight with them? For 300 years, Israel occupied Heshbon, Aroar, the surrounding settlements and all the towns along the Arnon. Why didn't you retake them during that time? I have not wronged you, but you are doing me wrong by waging war against me. Let the Lord, the judge, 
Decide the dispute this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. King of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. So, you got this fight. You got this guy, uh, the king of the Ammonites, who is mad because uh, this Israel is in territory that he thinks is his. And so he's going to fight in order to get that territory. And he says basically to Jephthah, he says, if you give over this territory that is, I think, mine, then everything will be peaceful. And basically what Jephthah is saying back to him is, God gave us this. God gave us this. This is, this is ours from the time of our entry into the promised land. God gave us this. And God did, your God didn't give it to you. Your God, Shemash, didn't give it to you. So what's the problem? Our gods, we both think are powerful. And my God gave me this. Your God gave you that. If you really trust in your God, then suck it up and deal with what you got. And all enjoy what we have and we can leave each other alone. But the king is saying, you see what happens? He ignores him. Why? Because he has to act independent of his God in order to get what he wants. You see it? Jephthah right there is saying, I'm dependent on God. And it's sort of funny because we don't see much about his faith. I actually think his faith is fairly nominal. I don't see him worshiping God, going to the holy places. We hear none of that for Jephthah. We hear that he hung out with a bunch of who? Scoundrels. And do you hang out with scoundrels if you're a godly person? We know that his qualification was a mighty warrior. This guy doesn't sound like much like a man of God, but here he is showing he's dependent on God for what Israel has. He is expressing faith that God is is present with Israel and giving them what they need, dependence. The other king is expressing independence and what sin, sin is, it's what? Independence from God. So this people, the Ammonites, are expressing sin. Now, let's keep going because there's some important stuff that I want to get to. 29 says, The Spirit of the Lord came to Jephthah. He crossed to Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah, here it goes, oh man, made a vow to the Lord. You give the Ammonites into my hands. Whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's. And I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from the Aurorar to the vicinity of Minnith, as far as Abel Karamim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter? Dancing to the sound of timbrels. She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. 
Do to me just as you promised, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites, but grant me this one request. He, she said, give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends, because I will never marry. You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed. She was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite tradition. Each year, the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. Now, we see Jephthah gains a victory, but it's a big cost. He asked God for victory, but makes the foolish vow. This is that foxhole plea. If you do this, I make this promise to you. God does this, and now Jephthah has to fulfill his promise. Of course, this is crazy, right? Who would vow that? But we do it in the same way. We maybe just don't do it with our kids. We say, God, if you save me from this, I will commit my entire life to you. Has anyone ever said that? I would actually expect there's probably more of you. You're just mentally putting up your hand. Okay, I see those mental hands. I got you. How many of you have fully and completed, committed, com- fully and completely committed your lives to Christ out of fulfillment of that vow? You haven't. There's things in your life that you haven't committed that are independent of God. Sin. How many of you, um, I, I, I don't think I ever did it. I'm trying to remember if I ever did. I said, God, if you get me out of this, I'll become a pastor. Has anyone ever said something like that? You know, I'll serve your kingdom in the church or something like that? And did you? And Sharon, are you a pastor yet? Sort of, kind of, but not really. I get you. We make these vows and then we have to follow them through. And God, God, you know, we're, we're these foxhole pleased that we make we're just like Jephthah in a way but um Jephthah follows through now here's the interesting thing about Jephthah and his daughter Jephthah makes a promise follow me here Jephthah makes a promise and in that promise he has to sacrifice his child for the sake of the promise does that sound familiar Thanks, Thomas. In some ways, this is actually an image of God the Father and Christ. A father makes a promise. He says to Abraham, he says to Isaac, he says to Jacob, I will save you. I will sacrifice for you. I will give you a way to victory And he offers his child to do it. In some ways, this is a little bit of a foreshadow of what is to come. And in the same way that we see Jephthah lament the will of a father who has to sacrifice his child, we can see a father in heaven who laments the necessary sacrifice of his son in order for God's people to gain salvation. This is already, Jesus is here, folks. He's in this text. He's showing up as the sacrifice for God's people's victory. Without Christ, there is no victory. Without God's promise, there is no victory. Now, of course, that's not yet a comfort to Jephthah. But hopefully, 
there is to come. So, what can we learn from Jephthah? Well, here's the first thing that we learn. God can use you despite your past. Doesn't matter if you are the child of a prostitute. Doesn't matter if you hang out with really messed up, broken, scoundrel-like people. God can still use you to see his kingdom grow. We also see something really important. That either end of the spectrum is really important. What happens when things are bad, like we said, in the foxhole, is really important. Do we turn to Christ? Are we willing to say, your sacrifice is enough for me, and that is my way to victory, and I will believe in the cross that gives me hope. I need to be saved, and you're the only one who can do it. Or do we go somewhere else? And the other side of it is, the other end of the spectrum, when you gain victory is important. Here's Jephthah saying, my victory will be marked by this cool thing that I'm going to do, sacrificing that thing that comes out of the door of my, my home. Unfortunately, the thing that comes out of the door of his home is his daughter. When things are good, it's an important time. How do we live into good? How many of you are having good times right now? How many of you have had graduations this week that you've celebrated? Anyone? How many of you have had have marriages coming up that you're really excited about? Or birth of children, either children, grandchildren, nieces or nephews or something that you're really excited about? How many of you have seen victory or good things in your workplace? How many of you teachers are on summer vacation? It's a good place right now. But where we dwell in the good stuff is important too. Either end of those spectrum, the spectrum of life is important. Jephthah teaches us that. And finally, the thing that Jephthah teaches us is that promises are important. When you make a promise, how you make that promise is really important. Now, I'm simply going to do this. I'm going to ask you what promises you have made. What promises have you made in the past? How many of you have made vows before God with a spouse? That's a promise. How many of you have stood at this covenant place where we have baptized children? Your child. You have. Promises are important. How many of you have in a foxhole even promised God that you would serve him? Or someplace else. You've been, you're going to go to Camp Dunamis. Camp Dunamis is a place where kids make promises all the time. I will serve you, Lord. If you and I have made those promises, are we living into them? Are we living in full and complete dependence upon God for every part of our lives? There's a thing this week, and I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. I wasn't going to do it, but I'm going to do it. There's a thing this week about what today is and how we pray today. Someone reminded me of that this morning. Um, I didn't need to be reminded. I knew it was there. The prayer this morning actually comes from a political bent that I'm not a fan of. And I don't like the call to prayer from a political side of things. I'm not a fan of it. But I do want to pray this morning. I do want to pray for our government. I do want to pray for our people. I do want to pray for our nation. But here's my prayer. And it's not political. It is simply a prayer that all of us as God's people are dependent on him. 
All of us. That our president is dependent upon Jesus Christ to guide him and keep him. That our Congress is dependent upon Jesus to guide them and keep them. That our Senate is dependent on Jesus to guide them and keep them. That our judicial is dependent on, on, on Jesus to guide them and keep them. That our mayors, that our governors, that our state representatives, that all of us, and then all of us as citizens are people who are fully and completely dependent on Jesus. Because if we are dependent upon Jesus, if we are seeking that dependence, not independence in, you know, that, that we're going to go our own way. We're going to do whatever we see fit in our own eyes. We're going to put our trust in this God, this thing, this political party, this money, this, this occupation, this relationship. We're going to put our dependence here. Instead of doing that and saying, we're going to be dependent upon Jesus, then all things come under his feet. And all things show his presence, his spirit, and his power in our lives. Because in essence, we're saying, come Lord Jesus, come into all of it. And you be present here. You be present in Washington, D.C., in Sacramento, California, in the city hall downtown. You be present in my neighborhood, in my schools, in everywhere. Because, Lord, in that dependence, if I walk with you, in all things, I don't have to worry about where I'm going. Friends, that's my prayer this morning. Prayer for not just the politics, but for all of us. Let's pray. Amen. Father God, we pray in Jesus' name that you move us to dependence upon you. And Lord, in that dependence upon you, that you show up powerfully in our world. That instead of us seeking to fix it ourselves, instead of us seeking gain for what we want, Lord, we only and solely and completely have your agenda. That we don't trust in princes or kings. We don't trust in politics. We don't trust in even our own capacities, our own gifts and abilities. That, Lord, instead we bend the knee to you. Because, Lord, we don't want to hear that from you. We don't want you to say, you have chosen your God. Ask them to save you. Instead, Lord, we want to hear from you. You've chosen me. And I will show my love to you. Father, move us in that way. Move us in, in whatever, wherever it is, Lord. And there's some of us for whom that is a really big thing. It's our whole life where you call us to be dependent upon you and we're not right now. And for some of you, for some of us, it's, it's little places. It's in our work. It's in our kids. It's in our family. It's in our parents. It's in our home, whatever. Lord, wherever that place is that you call us to dependence, Lord, may we seek that dependence on you. May we be willing to pray every morning, Lord, stay with me all through the day. Give me eyes to see, ears to hear where you are at work so that I can do what it is that you call me to do. Go where it is that you call me to go. Say what it is that you call me to say and be a part of the things that you want me to be a part of. Lord, may we submit our lives to you. Love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. May we do that, Lord, in dependence on you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.